Welcome to Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. If you'd like to see your own investments assessed in the Investors Chronicle Portfolio Clinic, email portfolio.clinic at ft.com or leonora.walters at ft.com. Joining me today are Tara Lockandwala, Deputy Personal Finance Editor of Investors Chronicle, and Paolo Bins, Manager of Funds including Royal London Sterling Credit and Royal London Short Duration Credit. Over the years, many investors have turned to bonds as a way to diversify equity-focused investment portfolios. But more recently, bonds have not been as popular for reasons including concerns on rising interest rates and because some don't offer such an attractive income as they used to. Paula, how much of a risk are rising interest rates to bonds and the funds that invest in them? Well, obviously, rising interest rates are not good for bonds. Um, because um, as, as interest rates rise, the prices will fall to reflect that on, on in the bond markets. And we've seen big concerns from our end investors. And what they've chosen to do um, is to buy short duration bonds or bond funds. So f- um, f- bonds that are less sensitive to interest rate rises. And um, as, as a way of protecting themselves against um, you know, int- interest rates going, going up. Um, obviously, when you look at um, gilt since the financial crisis, they've been trading at very expensive levels. Corporate bonds are priced off uh, gilts, and therefore part of the pricing of a corporate bond reflects that expensive um, gilt level. So it's not surprising that people are a little bit wary about um, fixed income. Um, and that picks up on a question I was coming to. Um, like you said, People have been arguing that it's better to be in short duration bond funds. So, first of all, what's actually meant by a bond fund's duration and why do people think it's important? Duration, when you talk about in, in, in bond, is just the sensitivity to interest rates. So the, the longer the duration of a bond, uh, the more sensitive it is to rises in interest rates so, and, and, and price falls. So if you think that interest rates are going up, then you'd want to protect yourself from those moves by buying bonds that are less sensitive to interest rate rises. Okay, so um, are these people right to have these concerns? I mean, do you think investor concerns in the bond market are overdone? No, because I think that when you look at um, gilt yields and you compare those with your inflation levels, um, if you're buying a 10-year gilt uh, at 1.5% and your inflation is projected to run at around 2%, you're obviously locking in a negative real rate of return. Now, with corporate bonds, you can actually get a margin over and above gilt so that at least you're getting a real rate of return. But you have to protect yourself against um, moves in interest rates or have to be at least wary of them. And if you look what's happened in in the US, for example, we've had four rate rises um, in the US last year. Um, You've got government bond yields that were trading between 2.5% and 3%. Um, and that's a good one and a half to two percent above where gilts are trading. So the risk is that obviously that you know that the gilt markets move towards what are more realistic levels of interest rates in 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 the medium to longer term. In view of this, um, why should investors consider holding a fund like Royal London Sterling Credit, which has an average duration of seven point five years? 
Right. Well, when you're looking at a corporate bond, you get in that yield over and above the gilt. So that at least you're not locking in a, a negative real rate of return. And on top of that, when you look at our funds, we are value-driven investors. We're looking to get excess um, interest from our portfolios through individual stock selection. So we're getting, uh, you know, a yield of approximately two percent or two and a half percent above the gilt so over and above what the benchmark is offering you so at least you've got the income there on that fund to um, compensate for any underlying moves in interest rates and that's important to our clients our clients are very much focused on income so that obviously mitigates the situation to a certain extent so what are the main risks to longer duration bond funds such as royal london sterling credit well, the main risks are one, underlying interest rates going up, which is the one risk that, that I think a lot of people are focused on. And the other risk is the actual pricing of corporate bonds. Because if you see big falls in, in equity markets like we saw in December, then that has an impact on pricing of corporate bonds. So, uh, which meant that actually last year you got a m- small marginal positive return on gilts but you actually got negative returns on corporate bonds. And that wasn't really to do with interest rates. It was much more to do with corporate bond pricing. And that was driven off what happened in equities. But fundamentally, corporate bonds, you're paid well over and above the risk of default. It's that excess margin that you need to compensate you for liquidity. What are you doing to mitigate these risks? We're we're stock pickers, we're bottom-up investors, so we're looking at the individual bonds that give you what we consider to be the best value and protections for investors. We've slightly lower interest rate sensitivity um, to the benchmark, um, and we've also got slightly shorter-dated maturity bonds within within the fund, which means that they're less sensitive to credit moves. That wasn't enough to protect the fund from having a negative return last year outright basis, although it did outperform the benchmark, but it did outperform the benchmark. So that was, you know, so that was a, a good outcome for us. So it shows that we picked the right, right bonds in the end. Okay. Now, what was the main reason for the um, negative return last year, albeit ahead of its peer group average? The negative return, well, you know, when we, when, you know, people invest in our funds because they want to invest in, cor- in corporate bonds. They like the valuation of corporate bonds. So we're, we are not trying to do asset allocation on the fund. So we're very much, um, it's, it's, it's pretty vanilla. We're just investing in the bonds that we like within the sector that we've been asked to invest in from our clients. Um, and by looking at bonds that offer you excess value that have what we consider attractive features that protect you on the downside. You're a bond investor. What you're worried about at the end of the day is not just interest rate moves and, and valuations. It's also default. So, you know, we're, we're um, you know, we always joke that bond investors are pretty gloomy, gloomy lot. Your upside is limited, but your downside is 100%. So what you really want to protect yourself is against default. So we look at bonds with features that really protect you from that sort of downside um, downside event. Okay, and but how, how did this contribute to the performance? Well, because you're getting that excess valuation. Mm. Because a lot of the time, these bonds, um, they are tend to be slightly more off the run. They tend to be ignored by other investors, and these are sort of areas that we look at. You know, you can have a borrower, for example, that has a bond that's 
in a benchmark and also a bond that's not in a benchmark. And some of our competitors will only be able to buy the bond that's in the benchmark. And so we have the flexibility of looking outside the benchmark. Now, because it's there, um, it's not in the benchmark, it may trade at a, at a, at a higher you know, yield. So we can take advantage of that. So for the same risk, we're going to pick, we're going to pick the, the bond with a, with a better return. And this um, has, has given us excess performance over, over the medium term within our funds. So it's a, it's a strategy that's worked. What you give up is a little bit of liquidity. You mentioned that the Royal London Asset Management fixed income team are value investors. So what's your definition of value investing and how do you apply it to bonds? Well, value investing is is very much again. It's a, it's about it's it's bottom up. It's being flexible. It's not being um, restricted to just as I mentioned before, just buying in benchmark. It's it's looking for particular features within a bond that actually protect you. And I've talked about the downside of being a hundred percent. So what you're looking for is maybe some sort of security on a bond, so that will really protect your capital. Um, it can be a security on on a, on a contract with cash flows. It can be security on a commercial property, but these sort of features, which we value highly, um, are not as highly valued as as in the market. And what we've been able to do in the past is is buy bonds with these characteristics, and very often with um, you know for the rating equivalent, um, trading at at a at a higher interest rate. And so you're just capturing that excess income over the years. Okay. So when you're selecting bonds for your funds, you know what what sort of what's your process? Well, we have obviously we have to look at the underlying business, whether we like actually the underlying business. We look at various factors, you know, whether it's cyclical or non-cyclical. We then, you know, if you're a if, if you're a bond investor, you're a lender to a company without many controls. So what you rely on is it's a large cap company and that they, the management are going to stay more or less the same and they're going to have the same policy over the years. If you're lending 30 to 40 years, you've got no real insight on that. And that's, that's, that's our view. So you can invest, for example, in, in BAT as a single A rated company and then find a year later that actually they've changed their policy and they actually want to be a triple B rated company. And although that doesn't mean default for your bond, it, must, it means a big change in that valuation. So what we like at, you know, at Royal London is um, protections against this type of behaviour. So we look at the structured sector in particular because that's got a lot of legal language, what we call covenants, um, that protect you against a company levering up, um, um, changing their strategy, uh, becoming less of a you know less of a strong credit, and and therefore that's detrimental to your valuations if in in the portfolio. Okay. Now, is there a difference in the investment process for the short duration and long duration bond funds you run? You know, we run the same philosophy and process across all um, the different durations that, that we manage uh, within the funds. Um, I also happen to run a pool fund that's um, long dated. So it's very much looking for what I've talked about before, which is these sort of structured, secured bonds with features that are real protections against you as a lender to the business. Um, it's just a different opportunity set. So there'll be some overlap between the intermediate funds and the short funds, and there will be some overlap between the intermediate funds and the long funds. Obviously, there's no real overlap between the very long duration funds and the short one. 
because that wouldn't make sense to have a very short duration bond within our in our long dated funds. You describe credit ratings as a lagging indicator. What do you mean by this? And how much importance do you place on bond and issuer ratings from the credit agencies? I think they are a good indicator of the credit worthiness of um, of a bond or a borrower. But I think when you look at the process of a credit rating agency, what they're looking at or what they're trying to make is a point in time assessment of the probability of default. So it's of as at that day that the rating is issued, how likely it is that a, um, a borrower is likely to default. Now, when you look at you know, history will tell you that an investment grade bond to go from a high, say, double A to, to default might take 10 or 11 years. So we're looking at things on a much longer basis. And we're looking at those features within a bond that offer you real protection for your capital. So and sometimes the methodology of the rating agencies um, don't coincide with our own way of looking at at bond investing so the rating agency may or may not take into consideration security or covenants um, that that is legal language that uh, protect you as a bond investor they will just look at in a, in a more pure sense at the probability of default whereas we go beyond that we look at what actually might happen if the bond does default it's not that we invest in bonds thinking they're going to default. It's just if the worst were to happen, what real protections do you have? And what you find is as a bond investor, if you're unsecured and there's no legal language to protect you, you're ahead of equity, but you're behind the banks and other secured lenders. So now, and this is our experience in the past. So this is like why we like the types of bonds that we do. That's not to say that all our portfolios invest in these types of um, bonds. It's just it's part of a diversified pool and the at least 50% of, the, of our portfolio will be invested with bonds where we think we've got real protections. Is this part of a reason why you include allocations to inflated bonds in some of your funds or you know, why, why do you hold these um, securities? Well, we are able to um, rate bonds ourselves. So we have a process by which we have to rate bonds for our own life funds. So if we own an unrated bond in our life fund, the regulator requires us to rate them. So we understand rating methodology. Our opportunity set sometimes lies, I talked before about being outside a benchmark. Well, unrated bonds, by definition, will not be included in in a benchmark. But sometimes it's in these unrated bonds that you find or that we find the characteristics that we really like in in bonds so they'll they'll be issued in the past when um, investors were less dependent on ratings so they're more interested in the types of um, protections that we like which are, is it secured again is a re- <laughs> slightly repeating what i said before but you know what what legal languages do you have within that bond that really protect you and and there there are there are, there's a big opportunity set within the unrated sector. What you give up is, is, is liquidity, but you don't give up. In fact, you know, credit risk. What I'm saying is you know, that sometimes the credit risk within those are more attractive or, or we think are more attractive than in the unsecu- uh, unsecured rated sectors. I suppose by definition or certainly the way some people think is that unrated bonds are riskier than rated bonds. So does having unrated bonds in the funds increase their risk? It doesn't increase the risk because the the bonds that we invest in that are unrated are typically secured. 
So in fact, we think they've got um, characteristics that are a lot less credit risk than, say, your unsecured lending at a longer term to a, a Glaxo or a or 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 um you know what I mentioned before imperial tobacco um uh, or bat so the character the credit characteristics of the unrated bonds typically are a better risk credit risk um than the than sometimes in the rated sector I'm not saying that it's in every case what you're giving up as I said is is liquidity because the investor base that are able to invest in these types of instruments is smaller so you you could argue that there'll be less liquidity. However, what you get to compensate you for that is your excess interest rate that, or return the potential that you can get on these bonds. So they've, they trade very cheaply to equivalent, what we would consider equivalent rated bonds. So for example, if we rated a unsecured, uh, sorry, a unrated bond single A, it typically might give you 50 to one basis points to 100 basis points over and above an equivalent single A rated bond that's in a benchmark. So it's, it's extracting that value. So what would be some examples of unrated bonds you hold in your funds? Well, we own a lot of um, investment trusts, for example, and they are typically small dated, a small issue size. So they're very small issue size. Um, they are secured against an investment trust, but oftentimes your capital cover might be five or even 10 times your debt outstanding. So you're very well protected. It's very it's hard to imagine a scenario where you could lose money in in that in that instance. When they have had ratings in the past, and because not all of them were issued as unrated bonds, um, they had typically AAA and AA ratings. Um, they trade at deep discounts to say where an equivalent AA or AAA bond would trade in that sort of maturity range. So you're picking up excess value and you're getting a return over and above a, a similarly rated bond. So for us, these these make a lot of sense. There's also another bond that we like to talk about, which is um, First Hydro. I don't want to go into too much detail, but this is a bond which is partially cash collateralized, but is unrated or is issued as an unrated bond. Um, it's now subsequently taken over by GDF Suez. But these are sort of bonds that you buy that you you know you the what I would call that you can buy and, and sleep easily at night, <laughs> not have to worry. What you might have to worry, but this is where we're challenged from our clients is they say, well, what if you have to sell those bonds? You know, how are you going to find liquidity for those bonds if you, if you have an outflow? But what we find is because they are attractively priced, that actually selling and uh, finding buyers for these bonds is actually hasn't proven to be a, a difficulty in the past. We've been talking about bonds, but the fixed income market or debt market is actually very wide. So do you only invest in bonds or do you look at any other types of securities in this wide universe? No, we, we, we look at, at corporate bonds. I mean, because it's very much the, the mandate that our, our clients are given us. So that, that's, we don't invest in equity in, in the corporate bond portfolios. Um, we sometimes invest in gilts. And the re- the reason we invest in gilts is is just for liquidity management within the within the funds. So if if you were trading in very stressed markets where you thought you might have outflows, I think that's um, that's a reason to own uh, government bonds. But but otherwise, it's it's pretty much invest in corporate bonds. Okay, and um, in what areas of the corporate bond market at the moment are you finding the best opportunities? Well, so, and the um, new issue market is is quite interesting at the moment. Um, we had a 
big fall in um, stock markets, which had an impact on, on credit pricing, which is why we had negative returns in, in corporate uh, bond funds. So you've seen some new issues, actually primarily coming from other currencies, which have been very interesting. So InBev did a deal yesterday, which came very cheaply. You had uh, BNP do a, an issue in dollars in January, again, priced very cheaply. And if we buy uh, non-sterling denominated um, bonds, we always hedge the currency, just add that. But um, we've got a uh, housing association coming this morning, um, Clarion, it's, it's, it's well-rated, sort of best-in-class. That's coming as a, at an attractive price, about 1.5% above gilts for a 10-year looks good value so the, the opportunity at the moment is coming within the new issues but the way we structure our portfolio is very much as i mentioned before just the focus on having at least 50 percent in the secured sectors so for example that clarion would be a secured bond within social housing okay now are there any types of bond issue or any particular areas you're avoiding at the moment we tend to avoid, as a matter of course, the sort of the sort of cyclical sectors, industrial sectors, particularly at the very long end. It's not that we don't own any, but we're very wary of the, you know, as I mentioned before, because of the lack of controls that you have when you're lending at the, for a very long term, um, to have too much exposure to the sort of cyclical parts of the market, like, you know, um, consumers, retailers, um, the tobacco is actually a sector that we've been underweight. We're also underweight the supranational sector, but that's very much on valuation because um, re- for valuation reasons, because they trade very expensively. Thank you, Paula. A really interesting insight into the bond market and the Royal London Sterling Credit and short duration credit funds. Putting an investment strategy into practice can incur a number of complications and a lot of work. So if you tried to implement two strategies together, it would create a whole raft of further complications. But that is exactly what one investor Taha recently met is trying to do. Taha, who is this and what investment strategies is he pursuing? Hi there, Noah. Um, So I met um, Simon Edelston, who works for Artemis and manages the Midwin International Investment Trust. The, I suppose the, the slightly interesting thing about this, this investment trust is it's definitely a global equity growth trust. So he's very much trying to buying stocks, watching them grow and trying to kind of improve investors' capital. But he um, he does this with, with capital protection as well. So he's very much driven on making sure that in, in a bear market, the fund also outperforms the index and peers and doesn't lose as much or tries to lose as little as possible. Um and how he does this is by being really, really strict on valuation. So when a stock meets a trigger point on valuation and now uh, Mr. Edelson only sees downside risk, he sells that stock. And then the problem with that is that sometimes you end up selling out of stocks that continue to run. Uh, so therefore, you have to give up this growth to make sure that you're protected on the downside. OK, now Simon Edelson had a particularly difficult problem two years ago. What was this? This was Amazon and, and, and Facebook as well. So there's some kind of big US tech names. Mr. Ellison sold out of Amazon in the middle of 2017. Now, if any, there were any shareholders of Amazon listening, they would be kind of putting their head in their hands if they'd done something like that. So by the time I spoke to uh, Mr. Ellison, which was towards the end of last year, um, Amazon had gone up 110% since he'd sold out. Uh, Facebook, which he sold around the same time, had gone up between 30 and 40%. So... You look at things like that and you realise how much is going to leave you behind the rest of the market if you, you sell out of stocks too early. So 
compared to Scottish Mortgage, which is you know famously a big backer of Amazon, this fund has now, despite being in the same sector, very much underperformed Scottish Mortgage because it sold out of Amazon so early. But that is because of this kind of strict valuation rule. Mr. Edelson said Amazon reached this valuation point where he thought now there was only downside risk and he had to mitigate that, so he sold out. So where's he invested the money instead? He's backing the Japanese automation sector, which is, is very, very specific and niche. And it, it worked quite well in 2017. They had a good year. Didn't work that well last year. The reason for this is, um, well, as, as we've talked about quite a lot, the trade war. So basically, a lot of companies end up sitting on their hands, whereas sales for automating warehouses or automating, you know, different areas of a business which end up saving money at the the expense of kind of human capital. There are lots of that going on in 2017, quite a bull period. 2018, a lot of businesses sat on their hands because they were waiting to see what the kind of outcome of the trade war would be before they started investing in CapEx. The flip side of that is he thinks a trade war in the long term would actually benefit automation strategies. And the reason being is that as companies start dealing with more expensive international trade, you know, another 15% if you have to import goods into the US, the way you would do that is removing human cost and automating. So therefore, he thinks there's a long-term trajectory for automation that would would benefit. And the, the Japanese sector is, is a world leader in that, he says. Okay. Now, um, as you said, um, Simon Edelston runs um, a growth strategy, but he also implements um, a defensive strategy alongside it. So what sort of investments has he made to boost the trust's defensive profile? Now, this is, this is one of the most interesting conversations I've, I've had uh, in recent times as to what kind of how you define a defensive stock. The first part is that he thinks the traditional defensive stocks that we, we kind of know and love in the UK, your Unilevers and stuff like that, he thinks they're not as defensive as people think because... Uh, following some research that they, they have either done or studied, shows that what consumers drop first and when economic times get tough and income starts to fall, it generally isn't um, the high-end products that we now know. So he says a, a defensive stock would be something like a broadband provider because as you enter recession, broadband cost does not fall, but broadband is now an essential product. So therefore, these companies are, are well, you know, they're very good to withstand economic downfalls. Whereas food and kind of ex- particularly expensive food is very high on the list to be replaced. So especially now you have supermarkets that have branded replacements. So you think of, you know, Colgate toothpaste, for example, a premium, well, the kind of semi-premium col- uh, toothpaste brand that would then be replaced by a cheaper product. So therefore it isn't as defensive as people think. But what the most in- the interesting thing that he does class as a defensive is actually Apple. Now, Apple considering what we talked about earlier, which being a, you know, a tech stock, he thinks is now a consumer staple stock. And the reason being is that Apple technology, particularly the people who subscribe to the Apple idea and it, like, incorporate Apple in their lives in every single aspect, they will never replace it. And even in a, a difficult economic environment, Apple products, particularly the subscription, things like Apple Music and the kind of other areas they're moving into, makes this a, a very defensive stock. Um, interesting, especially given the results we've seen from Apple earlier this week as well. Okay, now um, this is maybe a slightly unusual approach and um, some unusual views, but is it working? How's the how's Midwind International Investment just performing? Uh, it is working. So it's um, one thing I, I would say before kind of talking about Midwind's results is that um, Mr. Edelson only took over in 2014, so the period for between then and now hasn't really seen a very big bear market in which to test the defensive characteristics. But the logic he talks about and speaks about more widely in the interview in the magazine kind of gives you some idea how that will work. Um, but in terms of the growth strategy, it's outperformed the peer average, it's outperformed the index. 
it's not the the highest performing trust that is Scottish Mortgage, but Mr. Edelson says it will never be the highest performing trust because he always has this defensive kind of mindset and characteristic going on in the background. Thank you, Taha, and see this week's issue of the website for the full interview with Simon Edelston. That brings us to the end of today's show, but see today's Investors Chronicle of a website for more on fixed income and portfolio diversification and more fund manager interviews. Thank you for listening. The late bloomers tend to have more curiosity. They tend to have more resilience. There are stories and mythology that this country has woven around black men. What if everything we've been taught is just all wrong? What's worth more than this fear right now? And that rising after failure is part of the glory of being a human being. Listen to deeply personal, insightful, and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers. Listen and subscribe to The Unmistakable Creative wherever you get your podcasts.